Good to see you this morning. Uh, really glad to be here. Uh, Philippians chapter 3. Uh, you are aware of the context, this church that uh, Paul planted. Uh, he loved this church. It was the first church uh, that he planted that had really penetrated uh, the Gentiles uh, with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it had, it had such a place in his heart. In fact, uh, the word joy, as you probably know, mentioned some 18 times in this letter. And I just think about that. I mean, Paul's writing from prison. And yet the theme of the letter almost is one of joy. I mean, can you, I mean, just imagine that. Uh, I don't know that if I was in prison, uh, that the theme would be joy. You know, I think the theme would be get me out of here ASAP. Uh, but for Paul, uh, he was loving this church. He was encouraging this church. He was warning this church. And that's what we're going to get into a little bit today, a little bit of a warning that he gives them. And a warning is part of love, right? Uh, you know, one of my, my kids, my, I have uh, four girls, for those of you that don't know me. Uh, I'm the president of my own sorority house, okay? I've got uh, a 16-year-old. I've got a 14-year-old, 13-year-old. I don't know, 16, 13, <laughs> I should know this. And I tell people I went for that third one to be a boy. God gave me two more girls. And so I've got twins uh, that are nine or 10, all right? We'll, we'll figure these ages out. My wife's not here to tell me. Uh, a lot of girls in the family. And uh, my 16-year-old just got her license. Well, I love her. Uh, and part of my love is, is, is to give her warnings, right? And, uh, you know, if the, the, if the engine light in my car comes on and it warns me that something's wrong, I don't get mad at the manufacturer, all right? I'm glad that that came on because it's pointing me uh, to there's a problem. It's warning me. And so Paul, in his love for the Philippian church and these Philippian believers, uh, he warns them. And uh, that's what we're going to get into here in Philippians chapter 3. And I want to begin by reading verse 17. I'll read it all and then we'll just come back, kind of unpack it verse by verse. The Bible says this, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory and their shame with their minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm, thus in the Lord, my beloved. Did you notice in verse 17, Paul appeals using the word brothers. It's actually the fourth time we see it just in chapter 3 and then in the first part of verse 1. He calls them brothers. Paul, uh, as an apostle, uh, one who had seen the Lord, one who uh, God had revealed so much uh, to, he doesn't appeal to them. Uh, looking down on them. He's not judging them. He's not saying, listen to me because of who I am. But instead, he appeals to them as brothers. Uh, you get in Paul's writing a sense of humility. Uh, he's bringing them along. Again, not looking down, not judging, not saying you're nowhere where you should be. But instead, he says, brothers, look at this. 
from my perspective. See this from my, my perspective. I'm one of you. It speaks of Paul's humility. Uh, the greatest servant leader in the church was Jesus himself. Uh, the greatest, uh, it, the title he used to describe himself more than any other title in the Gospels was Son of Man. It was that messianic title used to describe the one that God would bestow all power and glory upon. Uh, and Jesus referred to himself often as the Son of Man. But do you want to know the second term that he used to describe himself more often than anything? It was the term servant. Think about that. Jesus said the Son of Man, referring to himself, didn't come to serve, but to be, uh, didn't come to be served, but to serve, Mark 10, 45, and give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew chapter 20, he said, don't be like the Gentiles who lord authority over people, but instead the first shall go last. The greatest among you will be your, what? Servant. Um, John chapter 13, the greatest example Jesus ever leaves us. In fact, he said, I've left you an example that you should go and do for others what I've done for you. And what was he talking about? He was talking about getting up and washing the disciples' feet. He served them. Uh, Paul, as you've been walking through Philippians chapter 2, uh, this is uh, what is often referred to as the Christus Psalm. Many believe that it was an early hymn in the church, verses 5 through 11. Let this mind be in yours. That was the same as that of Christ Jesus, who though in the very nature God did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant. And so Paul, we're going to see this language here where Paul in just a moment is going to say, I want you to follow me. I want you to imitate me. But what we see under all of this is Paul is imitating Christ. And so what he says here is brothers, sisters, he appeals to them as being one of them. He's not above them. He's not looking down on them. He is one of them. He says, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. He says, you follow me as I follow Christ. And this isn't the first time that Paul said this. If you're taking notes, I want you to write these verses down. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Two instances here. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1. Be imitators of me as I imitate Christ. As I imitate Christ. That word imitate there, it's where we get our word mimic from. Uh, when I uh, was growing up, I, I, I loved playing sports. Uh, matter of fact, I'm going to talk in the 1045 service. If you just came from the 8 o'clock, you're probably tired of hearing me talk. Uh, at 1045, get ready because you're going to hear it some more. Uh, but I grew up playing sports. And playing sports, whether it was football or, or baseball uh, or basketball, you typically, you know, as a kid, you'd watch those uh, players on TV and you would mimic them. I mean, for me, it was Bo Jackson. All right, he was a two-sport star, and uh, I remember he used to strike out, if you remember this, and he'd break that bat over his knee like it was a toothpick. I tried that one time and about broke my leg, uh, but I was trying to mimic him, and uh, he had a stance where he would just kind of 
he would, he would put his leg out and he would step toward the ball. Man, I just wanted to be like Bo Jackson. I would mimic him, mimic everything that he was doing. Well, Paul says, listen, brothers, sisters, talking to this church, I want you to imitate me. I want you to mimic me. I want you to take note of me. It's where we get our word scope from. Uh, the idea here is to contemplate, to examine, uh, to pay close attention to. I want you to look at my life, he says to the Philippian believers, and you put it under the microscope. I want you to really take note of it. Now, he's mentioning what you talked about last week, and I went back and watched uh, Mark brilliantly talk about uh, just the first part of Philippians chapter 3, and I want to just catch you up. When he says, imitate me, he's referring to all of these things he said in verses 1 through 16. As you know, Paul had an impressive resume. Uh, he went down, and matter of fact, just look in uh, verse number uh, uh, 4. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And he begins to list out this resume. Uh, he says, I was circumcised on the eighth day, an eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. But then what does he say? He uses this market-type language. All these things that were a benefit to me, I count as loss. And then in verses 12 through 16, look at the language because this is what we're to imitate. He says, not that I have already obtained this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. He says, I don't. Consider that I have, verse 13, that I've arrived. But one thing I do, I forget what lies behind and I strain toward what is ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. This is what Paul is saying. I want you to mimic me. I want you to put my life under the microscope and I want you to take note of how I live. Everything that could have been a benefit to me, I count it as a loss for the sake of of knowing Christ and I'm pursuing him and I'm running hard after him and I am focused on him it begs a question of application this morning um, are you an example worth following I mean think about it there are people watching you children in your home grandchildren, people in your workplace? Are you an example worth following? I mean, can you say with integrity, as Paul did, you follow me as I follow Christ? Could you say with integrity to the people in this room, to the people that you go to church with, hey, imitate me. Put my life under the microscope. And the way that I have counted all things as a loss compared to knowing Christ, you mimic me, you imitate me. The way that I press on, the way that I continue to move forward in my relationship with Christ, you mimic me. You imitate me. Can you say that? Are you an example worth following my dad was an English major in college 
And I can remember going on long trips with my dad. We lived in North Louisiana. My grandparents lived in South Mississippi. And so oftentimes we would leave on Friday afternoons after he got off from work. And we, he would come home. We would load the car, big old station wagon at the time. And we would drive to South Mississippi. And I can remember oftentimes it's about a five, six hour drive after you stop and eat dinner. And it would be late at night, maybe 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock sometimes. And everybody in the car would be asleep. And I would hear my dad saying something. And I just thought he was praying, you know. And one day I, I, I got up, you know, I got close enough to it. And I said, Dad, what are you doing? Who are you talking to? Ain't nobody, yeah, nobody's listening. Uh, we're all asleep. And he said, uh, Jared, I'm reciting poetry. He said, that's what keeps me up on these long trips. Because as an English major, he had memorized all these poems. I mean, for me, it's sunflower seeds and Red Bull. For my dad, it was, it was poetry. And I can remember him um, saying all these poems. And one of them I remember him quoting uh, was this one right here. It's called See a Sermon. I just want to read it to you. I thought about this as Paul is saying, you follow me as I follow Christ. Mimic me. Imitate me. Uh, the reality is uh, we are to be examples to follow. That's why I titled the lesson today, Examples to Follow. And people are watching us. And they're watching to see if our passion is Christ and Christ alone as Paul's was. That he considered all things a loss compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, that intimate relationship with Christ. And so he could with integrity say, follow me. People are watching you. Can you say with integrity, follow me? Here's the, here's the title of the, the poem. It's called See a Sermon. It says this, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell the way. The eyes a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Find counsel is confusion, but examples always clear. And the best of all the preachers are the men who live their creeds. For to see good put in action is what everybody needs. I soon can learn to do it if you'll let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your tongue is too fast may run. And the lecture you deliver may be very wise and true, but I'd rather get my lessons by observing what you do. For I might understand you and the high advice you give, but there's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. When I see a deed in, of kindness, I'm eager to be kind. When a weaker brother stumbles and a strong man stays behind, just to see if he can help him, then the wish grows strong in me to become a, as big and thoughtful as I know that friend to be. And all the travelers can witness that the best of guides today is not the one who tells them, but the one who shows the way. One good man teaches many, men believe what they behold. One deed of kindness noticed is worth 40 that are told. Who stands with men of honor learns to hold his honor dear, for right living speaks a language which to everyone is clear. Though an able speaker charms me with his eloquence, I say, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. It's not a, it's not a question, it's not a question of whether or not you are an example. The question is, are you a godly, healthy example that people can follow? 
Paul says, imitate me. Follow me. Mimic me. And again, his life was one of everything that could have been considered a benefit. Everything that could have been considered a plus. Everything that people would have raised their eyebrows at and applauded. Paul says, man, that's not where it's at. Where it's at is following wholeheartedly after Jesus Christ. Pursuing Jesus Christ. He says, follow the example. But notice there in chapter 3, he says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have. Look at this. In us. Last part of verse 17. In us. Um, Who is us? Paul, of course, is speaking of the leaders that he planted there in the church. Chapter 2, if you remember, Paul said, I'm sending Timothy to you, verse 19. He said he was going to send Epaphroditus to them. These are examples that they could learn from Timothy. He said, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. And so Paul had transferred this whole idea of pursuing Christ onto these leaders in the church. And he said, I'm giving you these examples to follow. Um, This week, I'm going to mention this in this service at 1045. Last two weeks, I've had two opportunities uh, to write endorsements uh, for a friend of mine, uh, two friends of mine who have books coming out. Uh, The first one is called Counted Worthy. And a buddy of mine who wrote it has uh, five children, two of which are severe special needs. And uh, he sent me his book, Counted Worthy. And as I read through this book and looked at it, you know what's most powerful about a message about being counted worthy? It's not just what he writes in the book. It's the fact that he's lived the message of that book out. That's what makes it powerful. It's it's an example. Another friend of mine uh, who's written a book named Daniel Ritchie was born no arms. As a child, he had to learn to do uh, everything with his feet. And you could see it. He can text with his feet. He can write with his feet. Got better handwriting than I do. Amazing man of God. Travels around the country. I'm going to get him here one of these days just to speak to our church. But he just came out with a book called Endure and the importance of remaining faithful. You know what makes his message come home? It's the fact that he lived it out. Like I've seen it. He's been an example to follow. There's power in being an example to follow. That's the point of that poem. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. It's the power of an example. In fact, when I teach people how to study God's word, Uh, I'm meeting with a group of high school kids right now every other Wednesday and teaching them how to study God's Word. One of the things that I'll give them are are certain things to look for in Scripture. I'll put them on the screen for you. You look for promises to claim. Uh, You look for commands to obey. You look for teachings to learn. Uh, You look for blessings to enjoy. One of the things that you look for is this whole idea of examples to follow. 
You could take this list right here. You know why sometimes Bible study is so boring to people? Because they don't know what they're looking for, right? They just open it up and say, okay, God, speak to me. Uh, Or they start in Genesis. And about Genesis chapter 7, they're like, oh, no, I shouldn't have started there. Uh, But when you look for something in Scripture, I, I would encourage you, if I was to tell you to go on a treasure hunt, your first question would be, well, what's the treasure that I'm looking for? You need to know what you're looking for so that you can find it. Well, in Scripture, uh, there are all sorts of promises in Scripture. Some scholars estimate nearly 30,000 promises in Scripture that we can claim for our life. There are blessings to enjoy. Ephesians chapter 1 is a big blessing to enjoy, all the things in the heavenlies, teachings to learn. How often do we read past something and we just skip over it and we don't even know what it means? Maybe we asterisk it. And we send an email to Mark and ask him, all right, if he doesn't have enough emails. Uh, Commands to obey. These are positive and negative. And you can read God's word and just look for it. God, is there a command in Scripture that I'm going to obey? Something I should do? Is there a sin to forsake? I mean, there's some things that are in black and white. Don't do this. Is there a sin that I can look out for? But then there's also examples to follow. The sermon at 1045 is a whole example to follow when opposition comes your way. That's what I'm going to be talking about in the next hour. Uh, Here, uh, Paul is saying, listen, follow me. I'm an example to follow. There's power in being an example. Who's been an example to you? Someone that showed you the way. Somebody that challenged you with their life on how to live a godly life how to have time alone with the Lord how to as Paul says here press on forget what lies behind who's been an example to you you know it might be a good practice this week can I just pastor you for a moment might be a good practice this week just to write them a note and say thank you if they're still alive so you made a difference in my life I wrote down a few people I wish I could write them a note Joyce Shoebridge, I think I mentioned her the last time I was in here, uh, took me through Sunday school from the 6th grade all the way to 12th grade, stayed with us. Uh, there was about, I don't know, six or eight of us in a class, and she showed up every week, took me through experiencing God, um, spoke words of grace and truth into my life, and um, I'm forever grateful for her being the example to me. I did her funeral about three or four years ago. Mike Fetchner, man who showed me the importance of prayer and fasting by example. Showed me the importance of what it looks like to minister to the poor, the widow, and the orphan. Uh, First time I came in Champion Forest Baptist Church was with Mike Fetchner to work out in your facility because he was down here in treatments at MD Anderson. He later went to be with the Lord. But he was an example for me. Joe Perry, a um, man who uh, taught me uh, the importance of investing my life in others, went on to be with the Lord. I wish I could write these examples to me of men of faith uh, just to say thank you. Who's been an example for you to follow? Verse 18, Paul says, For many... 
of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. These enemies, he's specifically referring to false teachers that had risen in the early church. Remember from last week, he called them dogs in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. Paul was holding nothing back. Mutilators of the flesh, these were the Judaizers. False teaching had risen in the church, and they were basically saying, listen, if you want to be close to the Lord, then not only is it following Jesus, but it's following Jesus plus following all the, the laws of the Jewish faith, observing all the festivals, all the ordinances. It's not Jesus alone for salvation. It's Jesus plus all these other things. And Paul here refers to him as an enemy of the cross of Christ. Notice Paul doesn't say they're my enemy. He says they're enemies of the cross. People that hold to a different worldview than we hold to. Uh, people that hold to a different belief system than we hold to, they're not our enemy. They're lost. Uh, they should be the object of our love and our affection and our prayers. But they are an enemy to the cross. Verse 19 lets us know that the enemies of the cross, their future isn't good. Look at it. Their end is destruction. Uh, That word destruction there is translated other places in Scripture, perdition, final ruin. Uh, Judas was called in John 17 a son of perdition, son of destruction, final ruin. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 that there's a narrow road that leads to life and there's a broad road that leads to destruction. Same word here. He says these enemies of the cross, their end is destruction. Look at how else he describes them. He says their God is their belly, their appetite, their desires come first. It's this idea if it, if it feels good, we're going to do it. We're going to partake in it. It's all sensual. He says their glory is their shame. They boast about things they should be ashamed of. And then he says this, look at this. Their mind is is on earthly things. Is that not a picture of the world that we live in? Is that not a picture of our culture? James would later write, and he says, friendship with the world is enmity toward God. And so look at this contrast. Paul says, brothers, sisters, I want you to share in my example. I want you to mimic me. I want you to take note of my life. Follow me as I follow Christ and he says but there are many day they're enemies of the cross and their end is destruction they follow their desires they glory in what should bring shame their end is not good but then he gives this contrast in verse 20 and it starts but our citizenship is in heaven And from it, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul takes a turn, and he contrasts enemies of the cross, those who don't follow Jesus, those who teach a different way than following Jesus, and he contrasts it with those of us who do follow Jesus. He says, our citizenship is in heaven. Now, if you read Paul's 
writing. He had an infatuation with heaven. I mean, every time he writes, he's pointing to spending time with Christ. I mean, remember Philippians chapter 1? I depart. I, I want to depart and be with Christ. I don't want to remain here, but I will on your behalf. But to go there would be so much better. He had this infatuation with heaven. And sometimes I, I look at, at his life and I think, man, I'm not infatuated with heaven. Like, man, I enjoyed going to the A&M Mississippi State game last night, right? Like, I enjoy uh, a, a nice dinner out. I, I like spending time with my family. I want to I experience my, my grandkids. I like heaven, but I'm not infatuated with it like Paul is. And so I ask myself, why am I not as infatuated with it as Paul is? And then I remember Paul's life. Philippians 1. He's writing in prison, in chains. 2 Corinthians 11. Remember this passage? I've been beaten. I've been stoned. I've been left for dead. I've been shipwrecked. I started looking at Paul's life and I thought, you know what? If my life looked a little bit more like Paul's, I'd be longing for heaven more too. Our citizenship is in heaven. Paul's appealing to these Philippian believers the same way Peter would appeal to those that he writes that this world is not our home. Like we're just passing through. We're pilgrims, the Bible calls us. Sojourners. The reality is we have a different home. And one of the reasons that Paul lived such a blameless life and could say with integrity, follow me as I follow Christ, is because his motivation was not an earthly one. His mindset was not on the here and now. But instead, it was in heaven. He says, where our Savior awaits. His mind was on heavenly things. I took a list from Scripture, and I just want to give you some things that are in heaven. John 18 says that we are members of Christ's kingdom. Our citizenship's already there. Revelation 13 says that if we're believers in Christ, our names are written in heaven. 1 Peter chapter 1 says our inheritance is in heaven. Matthew chapter 5 says our reward is in heaven. Matthew chapter 6 says that our treasure is in heaven. Hebrews chapter 12 teaches that the former saints are in heaven. 1 Thessalonians 4, our Savior is in heaven. I mean, there's a reason that Paul was so infatuated with heaven. Everything that he loved was in heaven. Maybe he made so much difference on earth because his mind and heart was so much on heaven. And maybe we don't quite make the difference that we need to make on earth because this is where our mind 
and heart is so very often. I don't know about you, but as I was studying Philippians chapter 3 this week, that just convicted me. That if we want to make a difference, as Paul did here on earth, then we better get our mind and heart set on heaven. Verse, chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The ESV has a note out beside this verse that says this, The Philippians' spiritual success would be Paul's crowning achievement. And I just wrote here in my notes, what would be my crowning achievement? Like, think for, for yourself. What would be your crowning achievement? That you accomplished this? That you did this? That you raised this kind of child or grand? What would be your crowning achievement. Paul says, Philippians, your spiritual growth, your spiritual maturity will be my crowning achievement. You are my joy. You are my crown. And so I just ask the question, what would be your crowning achievement? Is it someone else's spiritual growth? Is it someone else's spiritual maturity? Are you investing your life in others in such a way, the same way that Paul did here with this Philippian church, that he said, you're my joy and you're my, you are my crowning achievement, the fact that you're growing in Christ, the fact that you're continuing to press on. I guarantee you, Mark Lanier, I've talked to him enough about this, he, he loves this class. And I promise you, of all the worldly achievements Mark Lanier has, and he's got a list of them, all right? When I came here, uh, they, they told me, they said, hey, Jarrett, uh, just FYI, uh, on your search committee, Becky Lanier's on your search committee. Her husband's Mark Lanier. I said, who's Mark Lanier? <laughs> I didn't know. And here was her just Googling, all right? I said, okay. All these achievements, wonderful achievements. But I'm telling you, I know Mark well enough now, spend enough time with him. That his crowning achievement wouldn't be any of those things. It'd be just like Paul here in Philippians chapter 3. All these, all these crowning achievements of the world, they're a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. And you, my joy, my crown, that's how Mark feels about you. Really. Your spiritual success. Can you say that about somebody else in your life? Do you have someone that you're investing in? that you care for, that you love, that you're shepherding in such a way that you say, man, their spiritual growth, their spiritual maturity, that's my crowning achievement. Anything else is loss. So two questions to consider as we look at this text. I want you to think about it. And we've covered them both, but they're questions of application. Number one is this. What kind of example are you? People are watching you. Are you investing in others? 
when you stand before God and you give an account for your life, it's not necessarily what you will have to show for your life. It's who will you have to show for your life. Don't go to heaven empty-handed. Don't go to heaven without someone in your wake. You know what I'm talking about? Boats leave those wakes. You can surf that way. Who's going to be in your wake? Because you paved the way for him to walk with Christ. What kind of an example are you? Second question is this. Where is your focus and attention? For Paul, it was all about heaven, Christ, others. And it influenced the decisions he made in the here and the now, where his focus and attention was. Um, What's that quote? Don't be so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. That needs to be turned around. Don't be so earthly minded that you're no heavenly good. Our mind needs to be on heaven. On others. And if it is, we'll make an impact. I shared with your men a couple of weeks ago. Um, You know, the scripture says that the years of our life are 70 or by reason of strength 80. They are soon gone and then we fly away. You get the feeling in this book that Paul writes that he is intimately aware of that. Like, life's a vapor. Here today, gone tomorrow. What kind of example are you? Where's your focus and attention? Years of our life, 70 by reason of strength, 80. The average person lives to be 75 years old. That's 27,375 days to make a difference for Jesus, to live, leave a lasting legacy and impact. If you're 18 years old in the room, you have 20,805 days left make a difference if you're 30 you have 16,425 days left to make a difference if you're 40 you got 12,775 days to leave an example make an impact if you're 50 9,125 days If you're 60, 5,475 days left. If you're over 70, you made it, all right? Good work. Keep going. You could go any time now. No. 
What's the point? The point is, we got one shot at making our life count, being an example to follow. And the only way I know to be an example worth following, where we can say with integrity, put my life under the microscope, pay attention to me, look at me, watch me, imitate me, mimic me, is by putting our mind and attention on ultimately what matters. That's what Paul did here. And he made a difference that counted for eternity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together and then Brent, you come up and close us. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. And thank you for this opportunity to just unpack a little bit of your word. Lord, I pray that in it, God, we would be encouraged and that we would be challenged. Uh, your word says that the unfolding of your words give life. And so, Lord, there's great power in what this biblical literacy class does every week as Mark leads us to unfold your words. The unfolding of your words gives life. God, according to your scripture, whenever we teach your word, it's profitable for teaching and for training for correcting, for reproof. So Lord, today I pray that your word would go forth. God, that seeds would be planted, would bear fruit where it needs to bear fruit. And that Jesus, we would, the takeaway today would be that we would be an example worth following. And God, we put our mind and attention on what matters most, and that's eternity and the spiritual life of others. In Jesus' name, amen.